In today's episode, we start a new chapter in Mark, chapter 11, uh, the whole thing. As Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem on a colt, greeted by jubilant crowds waving palm branches, the atmosphere is charged with anticipation. Yet, beneath the surface, tension simmers as Jesus confronts the religious establishment and challenges their practices. We then witness a powerful demonstration of Jesus' authority as he curses a barren fig tree, cleanses the temple too, symbolizing impending judgment. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Wednesday, November 15th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota, and Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. We're live this morning, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions to 800-730-2727, or you can email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Send me a message there. I'll try to get your question or comment out on the air. Right now, let's welcome back to the program a regular contributor to the show, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein. He's the pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Good morning, Pastor Eckstein. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. How are things going for you? Uh, it's it's nearly the end of Pentecost. I can't believe it. Yeah, I know. I'm ready to kick off Advent. Uh, we're really <laughs> busy here, too, because uh, next week, of course, is Thanksgiving. And uh, our, our church uh, does a community Thanksgiving meal uh, for free for people. Uh, oh, last year, nice. we served over 1,000 meals, and we're probably going to do more this year. So we're gearing up for that. <laughs> wow, that must be quite the undertaking. I assume you have a lot of help in that. Oh, it is. Yeah. So I have volunteers from the church, and then we have people from the community that help out too. So it's great. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, we have an interesting chapter to cover today. It looks like we're covering, is it the whole chapter? Yeah. Yes, the whole chapter. Verse 26, but we can go all the way if you want. (laughs) No, no, no. We better not. I'm going to leave that last little bit. So almost the whole chapter, uh, but we're going to cover several key uh, events in Jesus's ministry. But before we do that, let's go ahead and start off with prayer and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and as we study this text and see how your son uh, entered Jerusalem, uh, ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many, uh, we understand uh, what the true purpose of the temple was. Lord, uh, we we see that all those sacrifices that were offered in the temple were pointing to your son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So help us to understand how this uh, text today is ultimately pointing to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and the hope we have in him. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last time we saw Jesus, he had healed blind Bartimaeus, and that was on their way from Jericho to Jerusalem. And now in chapter 11, we're finding them real close to Jerusalem. Is there anything you want to lay the groundwork for before we read the text, or you want to jump right in? Well, just one little comment. Uh, In my prayer, I alluded to what... uh, Uh, Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 45, which is just pretty pretty much directly preceding what we're looking at today. And of course, in in Mark 10, 45, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we we really need to understand this sacrificial offering of Jesus, his death on the cross, as as what's going to be undergirding what's going on here in chapter 11. Okay, so here we go. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 
Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied upon which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Then say, The Lord has need of it, and he will send it oh, sorry, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. All right, so we're going to pause right there. Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and uh, he's, he's, he's on his way, but they put him on a colt. Uh, take us through this, but I, one of the things I want to make sure that you address is that there are some folks out there that look at this and go, did, did Jesus just steal someone's colt? <laughs> so tell us about what's going on. Yeah, you know, I say, you know, if someone comes to my house and wants to take my Toyota Tundra, and I say, what are you doing? Well, the Lord needs it, you know. Oh, okay, that's fine then. <laughs> well, sure, in that case. You know, yeah, right. And, you know, again, we, we don't know uh, any more than what the text itself tells us, but we have two things going on here. First of all, you know, how much did these people know whose cult was being taken? You know, uh, were, were they aware of who Jesus was and the fact that they were taking this cult for spe- specifically for him? If so, that would explain why they were more willing to, to let it go rather than calling, you know, saying, thief, stop, you know. Um, so I'm, my guess is that they had a, an idea, oh, so this is for Jesus. Um, but I think there's even a bigger thing going on here. Um, the the, the old, whole idea that this is in fulfillment uh, of, of a, a verse from Zechariah, specifically Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where it talks about the Savior entering Jerusalem, uh, the king coming on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so um, there, there's more to this than simply that Jesus needed a ride. You know, the very fact that he is uh, riding into Jerusalem uh, on this colt uh, is, is, is he's fulfilling prophecy before their very eyes. And, and the the, the many Jews there would have recognized this uh, uh, from Zechariah, just as they go on to quote uh, later on in, in verses 9 and 10, you know, verses from Psalm 118 as well, and, and directly applying them to Jesus. So, so here we see that, that um, uh, this is more than just Jesus needing a ride, but he's actually fulfilling uh, Zechariah's prophecy here. And so Jesus, knowing Zechariah's prophecy, is intentionally fulfilling it. I mean, he could have walked into Jerusalem. He could have gotten on a horse. He could have – there's all kinds of ways that he could have made his way in. But knowing Zechariah's prophecy, or really his prophecy through Zechariah, he does this intentionally to fulfill it. The question I have is, you know, when I was growing up, I I heard often this sort of contrasting between – you know, Jesus didn't come in on a war horse, but he came in on the on the donkey, on the foal of a donkey. Um, we even have this, you know, this idea of a, a new mount, so upon which no one has ever ridden. The question is, would the people around Jesus at that time, would they have seen this and said to them, I mean, they would, this would have brought to their minds, oh, he's he's doing something kingly or he's doing something messianic. Would they have made that connection? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I've done some research on this, and, um, uh, you know, some have argued, well, you know, if he really wanted to come in and, and, and be viewed as a great king, he would have rode a big war horse. But here on a, on a donkey, he's humbling himself. Although um, I, I, in some research I've done, uh, th- th- there is some evidence, at least in, in um, uh, other ancient Near Eastern uh, societies, where, where kings would ride donkeys. Uh, as a way of having status. But I think what's actually going on here is that Jesus wants them to connect this specifically with the prophecy of Zechariah, which not only says the Savior will enter on a colt, the full of a donkey, but you know, how much uh, wider do they read that uh, prophecy? Because what's interesting, we, we know that many of them were expecting Jesus to be this conquering king, you know, get the Romans out. But, you know, when you look at the prophecy of Zechariah in context, it, it talks about uh, this, this, this king, this savior, bringing peace to the nations. Uh, he, he's not a warrior king. In fact, later on in Zechariah, uh, we find out that he's going to be the shepherd's going to be pierced, and and in and I, Zechariah thirteen one he's going to be providing a fountain of forgiveness, and then later on in, in Zechariah thirteen it talks about the shepherd, you know, the people striking the shepherd, which of course is referred to later in the Gospels as referring to Jesus' upcoming crucifixion. So um, you know uh, Jesus is hoping they will put all this together and realize he's not riding in to kick out the Romans, but instead he's riding in as he said in Mark ten forty five to give his life as a ransom for many. But uh, how many people grasp this? Probably not many. Mm, Interesting. And and so we have them shouting out, though, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. So they're, they're laying these cloaks out on the road. And we also hear that they're putting out branches there, too, from the fields. I've always picked them as palm branches, right? And, and undoubtedly that we also get that elsewhere. But, you know, they're basically doing this. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, an act of homage, a re- really a, a public declaration of their allegiance to him as king. Of course, the question that remains is, do they understand what kind of king he is? And as they're shouting this Psalm 118, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, give us, or O Yahweh in this case, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, do they see him as coming humbly, or do they see him as just the prelude to when he's going to kick out the Romans? And I think that's been the biggest struggle, and we talked about that yesterday too. But as we get even farther into Jesus' journey into Jerusalem, we're going to see there are other crowds later, the ones who are calling for him to be crucified. I think there's some confusion on whether the people who are here— are these are these the crowds that were following him throughout you know on his way to Jerusalem or is it a mixed crowd of them and some new people and are they the same crowds that are crying for him to be crucified by the end um do, do you have any thoughts on that yeah and, and you know uh, certainly those who were yelling crucify him could have been uh, uh, uh some different people than the ones that were initially here in the triumphal entry but at the same time I wouldn't be surprised if at least some of the people who were yelling crucify him were also the ones who were saying Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, because, you know, they were, they were waiting for Jesus to come in and kick out the Romans, but instead he goes to the temple 
and cleanses the temple and said, you know, this is a, a, a house of prayer for all nations. And, and when they realize, oh, he's not saving us from the Romans, I, I can at least uh, uh, easily understand how their view towards Jesus could quickly change. It's almost like, well, if you're not going to do what we thought the Messiah is going to do, then, then you mustn't be the Messiah. But, you know, uh, whether all the people that were in the triumph for entry uh, were the ones who yelled crucify him, I, I'm sure some of them. Uh, did not uh, 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 go against Jesus, but I would argue that they were at least very confused. We, we think of the disciples. Uh, obviously, they were not the ones who, uh, who yelled crucify him, and yet they're confused by all this. They, they don't really understand the purpose of Jesus' death until after the resurrection. Well, what happens next, we know that he's going to be cleansing the temple in our text for today, but what happens next in verse 11, which we haven't read, um, is a little interesting. Uh, here we go. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was all, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So before we get into what happens the next day, on the same day that he comes into Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple, he heads in, and he kind of looks around, and it's like, yeah, it's late. <laughs> and yeah. so was he going to clean it out then, but just there wasn't enough people there? It's just interesting. But then he goes out to Bethany uh, with the 12, I guess, wherever he's staying with them. But even this place, Bethany, where he got the cult and everything, this is a this is a place that's familiar to Jesus. I mean, he, he would have been there before. You know, in terms of that cult question, he could have very well have planned, as you said earlier, to go get it. Uh, I think there's also sort of a custom where, you know, if someone important comes in and needs a mount that, you know, it's customary just to let them use it. But but anyway, the point is, um, he he has uh, seems to be looking for something specific before his timing. So he goes and he's waiting till the next day. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I find it interesting how you know there's all this uh, uh, you know excitement over Jesus entering Jerusalem, especially if if they think he's going to you know walk right in up to Pilate and say get out of here. Uh, instead, he doesn't go to the Romans uh, and and uh, and tell them to get out. He he just goes to the temple. He looks around and then just heads out to Bethany with his disciples. It's kind of anticlimactic to the whole thing here. Yeah, um, it is a little Jesus, bit. This is, he doesn't really cause much of a stir, and I think that that's what the people are looking for. Boy, this is ready to come to a head now. And then Jesus, instead of going to Pilate, he goes to the temple and then heads off with just a few of his close associates, the Twelve, and, and that's all there is to it. But as we can see here, uh, the next day, Jesus starts uh, doing some things that are very significant to help us understand the message he's trying to convey to us here. Yeah, the next day he, he continues to act oddly um, if we don't understand what's going on. I'll go ahead and read that, verses 12 through 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. All right, so pausing there, you know, we have this cursing of the fig tree. I, I think a, a very surface level, not considering the context or anything else reading of this, it kind of sounds like Jesus is being a little petulant. He shows up, the trees, he's hungry, he doesn't have anything, so he curses it. Surely there's more to it than that. 
Absolutely. In fact, there, there's a reason he showed up to the temple in verse 11, because I, I, I think we need to argue that what, what goes on from now on, from verse 12 through uh, verse 25, is really all about the fact that the temple is about to be replaced uh, because Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And of course, oh, oh, we know that, that Jesus uh, in the Gospels um, foretells the, the destruction of the temple itself uh, precisely because the people don't make the connection between the, the temple and its fulfillment in Jesus. And of course, uh, the animal blood sacrifice is offered there pointing to Jesus, you know, giving his life as a ransom for many. So I would argue here that, that the cursing of the fig tree is not about Jesus having a temper tantrum because he was hungry and the tree didn't have any figs. Um, This this becomes a symbol of of how uh, the the people, the the Jews of his day, Israel of his day, ends up being cursed because they're not bearing the fruit of repentance and faith in Jesus. And, And we'll see this kind of as we go on. And uh, so uh, this isn't just about Jesus getting mad because, you know, uh, there's no fruit on the tree. Because, you know, what's a little odd is that why should he expect to find fruit? when, you know, it was not the season for figs, you know. And and so I think the issue here is not so much that Jesus was, was primarily looking uh, uh, to, to uh, you know, satisfy his hunger, although he may have certainly been hungry, but he's using this as an object lesson. The point being is you have these outward leaves, so it looks like there's life there, but there's no fruit. There's no, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, 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 anything of value. And so the, the, the whole idea is, you know, you, you have Israel that has this outward spiritual, you know, uh, 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 dedication to the temple, but there's no real fruit there. They, they don't realize what the temple is really pointing to, and that is Jesus. And this isn't the first time either. I mean, we, we look in places like Jeremiah 8.13. It's written, when I would gather them, declares Yahweh, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Micah says something very similar in chapter 7. Woe is me, for I have become as good as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. So Israel's often compared to this fruitless fig tree, and at least in yeah. the Old Testament, God's people, I should say. And Jesus basically reenacts those things as an object lesson, as a as a as a vivid, I guess, real life parable. And we see here in verse fourteen the key. And his disciples heard it. Now, whether they understood it, I guess, still is debatable. But they certainly heard it. Jesus is continuing to point to who he is and what he's there to do. Um, so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I would argue, especially based on the text that you quoted uh, from um, uh, the Old Testament, I would argue that his disciples would have made the connection. They were all aware of those Old Testament texts of where God uses the analogy of a fruitless fig tree. And, and, and applying that to his people who are unfaithful and don't trust in Yahweh. And, and so I, I, I would argue that they, they understand what Jesus' object lesson is. It's like uh, God's people are going to be cursed for their unbelief. So I would argue they understood what Jesus is saying, but I don't think they liked it. Uh, they, they don't want to hear that Israel is going to be cursed. They don't want to hear that the temple is going to be leveled. They want to hear that 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 Israel is is going to be uh you know rescued from the oppression of the Romans. So, you know, even though I I would argue they probably understand what Jesus is saying here, they're not ready to accept it. 
No, and you know, and they're going to be asking him some, you know, other things about it, especially when they come back across it again. But I, I'm just picturing them being, you know, here. Well, now they're headed toward Jerusalem. They haven't quite gotten there yet. And you know, if I if I was with Jesus and I saw that the previous day, okay, he comes in to all this pomp and circumstance. He goes to the temple, doesn't do much. The next day, he curses his fig tree. And now I'm thinking messianic. I'm thinking of those prophecies. I'm I'm thinking of the fact that he's here to judge. And then we have verse 15. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out all those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Okay, so we can just get started on this one. You know, they go into Jerusalem. And he starts making a beeline to the temple. I, I wonder what they thought was going to happen. You know, obviously it's just speculation, but I have a feeling, even based on just Jesus' demeanor, they knew that something was about to go down. Right. You know, and again, I'm sure a lot of them were hoping he would have went right to Pilate and say, you know, get out of Dodge. He's not doing that. He's going going to the temple. In verse 11, he goes there and doesn't really do anything. But now he's here in verse 15, and he he is upset. He, he throws out uh, those who were uh, buying and selling in the temple. And, uh, uh, and, and the whole reason is that they were set up in an area that was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. So again, you know, uh, uh, we, we, we can't read this as though, okay, it's wrong to have a fundraiser at church. You know, that, that's not what was going on here. Uh, a modern day uh, equivalent of this would be that we can't have a divine service because uh, there are other things going on in the sanctuary that have nothing to do with it. And uh, that that would be a sacrilege. And then that's what's going on here. The very space of the temple that was meant to be a, a place of prayer for all nations to seek Yahweh um, is being used for a completely different purpose. And and so uh, he he shows his his anger at this that that his people just aren't getting the purpose of the temple uh, uh, not only as a witness to the nations but ultimately how it's fulfilled in him. And let's talk about that just a little bit more, because when we talk about the temple changer, the money changers and those who are buying in the temple, I mean, they're not selling temple T-shirts and they're not selling, you know, right. miniature arcs and little you know, tchotchkes. I mean, they're actually serving a pretty good purpose. Now, they might be doing it a little less than on uh, uh, above board, but still you there was a custom that you couldn't use Roman money for the temple which seems fair. And then there was a custom that, you know, for your sacrifices, you had to have animals to sacrifice. So, exactly. you know, Jesus isn't really necessarily criticizing the actions, although he might not be perfectly pleased with their honesty if they're dishonest. But really what you're saying is really important that they were occupying a space yeah. kind of like almost ended up like gatekeepers occupying a space that was intended for really anybody, even if you weren't a Jew, right? This was a place that you could go to even if you weren't a Jew, or am I mistaken there? 
No, it, it was. And, and what's interesting, I'm going to talk about this as we get into the next section, but um, I, I was reading uh, the Concordia commentary on Mark by James Vels, and uh, uh, in this section, he quoted a Ph.D. dissertation by uh, a gentleman with the last name of Berge, and he makes this excellent comparison with the, the prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 about the purpose of the temple and what's going on here. And what's interesting is when you read 1 Kings chapter 8 in Solomon's prayer, uh, it's all about uh, appealing to God for forgiveness of sin. And, and that includes the nations, the Gentile nations. He says in 1 Kings 8, you know, when, when the Gentiles hear of your renown, O Yahweh, and, and, and come to the temple and, and cry out to you, forgive them also. And, and so uh, it's almost like Jesus is trying to remind them, you know, remember what the original purpose of the temple was for, uh, that people might seek me in repentance and receive forgiveness, but, but you guys are completely missing the purpose of that by not connecting the sacrifices with what I'm about to do. Now, this also, I should say, this is not the same incident mentioned in John chapter 2 when he cleansed the temple, or is it? I know there's some confusion there among some folks. You know, there's a either it either it sort of happened twice or John put it way out of chronological order, which of course wouldn't be uncommon for John. Uh, what do you what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, and, and it's, I've gone back and forth on that over the years. You know, uh, on the one hand, it, 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 there's certainly no reason why Jesus couldn't have done this twice. Um, uh, uh, he, he does other things more than once uh, through the Gospels. At the same time, though, uh, we, we know that John, uh, when you study John's Gospel, uh, he's not always necessarily concerned with chronology so much as, as uh, having sections of his Gospel making theological points. So, and I'm not saying John is inaccurate. I'm just saying his his purpose is not necessarily to present thing, everything in a, a direct, precise, chronological order. So, one could argue that John put that that uh, you know event of of cleansing the temple in that part of his gospel to make a theological point, and and maybe not necessarily necessarily saying it happened twice. But in any case, uh, whichever uh, way you go, whether it happened once or twice, the, the theological point is the same. Uh, the, the people don't understand the purpose of the temple uh, and ultimately how it's fulfilled in Christ. Right, because in John, the discourse really turns into, you know, do not uh, make my father's house a house of trade. So the focus is a lot more on Jesus's identity uh, right. The disciples remembered the prophecy, zeal for your house will consume me. And then Jews confront him and are basically saying, well, you know, what sign or authority do you have to be doing these things? So it could be very well, as you said, the same incident, incident but different aspects of it are highlighted for different teachings. Or it, of course, happened twice. And, you know, we've seen that, like with the feeding of the thousands. So, yeah, I, I just think that was an interesting point. Sometimes people bring it up. Uh, but tell you what, I think we should take a little bit of a break. We have more to talk about, about Jesus cleansing this temple. And then we're going to get into the lesson from the withered fig tree. What exactly did that mean? So don't go anywhere. We'll be back.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. Today with me, I have the Reverend Thomas Eckstein. He's the pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota, and we're talking about Mark chapter 11. Now, before we get back into the text, I just want to remind you again that if you have any feedback, questions, comments, just reach out. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Pardon me. You can also find me on Facebook. Or you can call into the studio at 800-730-2727. Any of these methods can get your question or your comment out on the air. All right, Pastor Eckstein, before the break, we were just sort of getting into Jesus and his cleansing of the temple. Um, you know, one of the things that I had written down earlier that I forgot to bring up is that the coins in the temple, um, at least from what I read, uh, they preferred the shekel of Tyre. And there was some interesting um, things mentioned, and I don't know that it really carries a lot of theological weight, but I just think it's interesting. But the shekel of Tyre actually had the image of uh, a form of Baal on them, or Baal, however you want to say it. It's sort of interesting that that this money was the preferred use in the temple, if my notes are correct. Yeah, I mean, I had not heard of that. You, you, uh, uh, I haven't uh, come up with that on my own. But if that indeed is the case, that would be surprising to me too. Yeah, uh, you, uh, you would think that the Jews would consider that anathema. But <laughs> you would think so too. And so maybe that's if if this is accurate, uh, maybe that is also one of the reasons why you know this is just another example of of how I guess devious the practice was because they're in this right. courtyard. And the Gentile converts, of course, were supposed to have a place to pray. There's also a place where, I guess, in, in technicality, the public could come. But all this buying and selling and the money changing, it's hindering their worship. Um, right. That's probably not the only thing that was hindering the worship of bringing new people in. You know, the Jews who were supposed to be a priesthood to all people, supposed to be you know, a, a nation that draws all people to the one true God, so many of the man-made rules and regulations over the years and customs really kept people out more than bringing them in. I think that also reminds us that we should analyze some of the things we do to make sure that they're proclaiming the openness and glory of God rather than shutting people out. Well, exactly. And in fact, we know one of the problems, ironically, uh, uh, of the Jews in Jesus' day is that even the Old Test, even though the Old Testament says a lot about God's people Israel being a light for the nations, um, yeah, many of the Jews in Jesus' day uh, almost uh, had this view that, well, salvation for the Jews, yes, but for the Gentiles, not so much. And we, we even see this in the book of Acts, where Peter himself needs to get a vision from God <laughs> before he's willing to go to the Gentiles. So apparently, uh, by, by Jesus' day, the Jews had this very um, exclusive view that salvation was for the Jews, but, you know, not so much concern about the Gentiles. But, but, but we see a completely different focus in the Old Testament where, where, where God wants all the nations to be blessed through his Son. So uh, you can understand Jesus' frustration here. 
It makes us think, though, I mean, in what ways do we inadvertently do that today? You know, are there people in our lives or people in our country or people to whom God has called us to that somehow maybe maybe not on purpose, but just somehow part of us says, well, they're not worthy of the gospel or they're someone to whom I don't want to go. You know, very, very Ninevite-esque of, you know, of, of some people. We just think, well— you know, I, I wouldn't want to witness to them. And yet, as you said, when you talk to Abram the first time, through you, all nations will be blessed. Right. So th- there right. just illustrates sort of the just how uh, crass it was for them to be doing what they were doing and where they were doing it. So Absolutely. there they are. And it says in verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. And so now we have the next morning, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, so we'll stop there. Uh, this is the end of our text for today, too. So, so they, this is the next morning. If I'm if I'm keeping track right, this is Tuesday of Holy Week. Is when they see the fig tree withered away to its roots. Yes, and you know what's interesting is this 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 section here, verses twenty through twenty-five, uh, very confusing for many people. It almost seems to be like a bunch of disconnected statements, but the reality is it all fits together beautifully when you realize what's going on. So uh, let me just briefly walk us through it. Okay, they they come back to the fig tree that Jesus has cursed previously, and it's withered to its roots. And we, we've already discussed how how uh, the people would have made a connection between the object lesson with the fig tree not having fruit, and what the Old Testament said about, you know, Israel being like a fruitless fig tree and deserving God's curse. So, you know, this object lesson is like, well, you know, uh, th- this generation deserves to be cursed because of their unbelief. And then you tie that in also with the idea that Jesus has uh, been predicted the fact that the temple itself um, will be no more, uh, uh, because the true temple, Jesus is here. In fact, you, we, earlier before break, you referenced John 2, where you have the cleansing of the temple, and, and Jesus makes the statement, you know, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And then John makes this parathetical statement while Jesus was referring to his own body, you know. And, and so you, you have in this section, verses 20 through 25, it's really about uh, uh, how the people completely misunderstood the temple and how the temple building itself is no longer important because the real temple is there. So with that in mind, uh, when it goes on in, in verse 22, Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, I want to emphasize this mountain briefly. He's not just talking about any mountain anywhere. He's talking about this particular mountain, and I agree with the scholars that say he's referring to the Temple Mount. In other words, this is about uh, uh, those of you who believe that this Temple Mount will be uprooted and thrown into the sea. That's just hyperbole 
for the temple is going to go away. Okay, it served its purpose. The real temple's here. So when Jesus says has faith in God, what he means is when, when the temple has been uprooted and thrown into the heart of the sea, when the temple goes away, uh, don't doubt, but believe that what he says will come to pass. And, and, and who's the he that says what will come to pass? Jesus. He's the one who has predicted that the temple will be no more, but don't despair. The real temple's here. And so even though the temple building might be gone, uh, oh, there is still hope for salvation and forgiveness because the true temple is here. And that takes us to verse 24, which is the favorite of, of, of name it, claim it preachers. You know, therefore, right. I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and, you'll, and it will be yours. You know, how many times haven't we heard TV preachers use that? You know, just just name it and claim it and you get what you ask for in prayer. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about there at all. And and here's where Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8 uh, as, as an illusion uh, uh, really is awesome here. Because Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer. So does Jesus mean, well, if I want a Cadillac, I'll get a Cadillac. If I want a condo by the ocean, I'll get an ocean. If I want a billion dollars in the bank, no, no, no. The whatever is about whatever sin you want to confess. Why do I say that? Because if you go to 1 Kings 8, verses 38 and 39, Solomon is talking about the temple, and he says this, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man, then hear in heaven and forgive so here we see that the whatever prayer is not, God, you know, give me health, wealth, and prosperity. The whatever prayer is whatever sin I confess, believe that through Jesus I have forgiveness, even though the temple itself has been thrown into the heart of the sea. And lo and behold, what's the very next thing Jesus deals with in verse 25? Forgiveness. Uh, so uh, this whole thing is, is, is about trusting that when God removes the temple, and, and, and levels it, uh, we don't have to despair because God is still on his throne and we still can appeal to God in prayer for forgiveness because the true temple, Jesus is here. Well, and we see here in this passage that Jesus is making all of these, yeah, it seems like health and wealth or disconnected statements, but you've done a great job of really connecting us to exactly, you know, wh what Jesus is trying to get across as a message. I think it's hard for us, too, because sometimes the Bible will give us the situation, but we know that these aren't the only things Jesus are saying. We know that this isn't the only – we can't see how he's behaving or talking or where he's pointing. So sometimes, even though it's certainly God's word and salvific, you know, a lot of detail is lost. And so that's why we say Scripture interprets Scripture, and you've done a great job yeah. of demonstrating just why that's so important. Yes, and, and you know, um, uh, this whole idea of have faith in God, because why does he need to say that in this context? Well, Jesus has just pretty much said, this generation of unbelieving Jews is cursed, and in other places in Mark's gospel, he's made it clear that the temple itself will be obliterated, and, and for a Jew of that time, that would be the end of the world. I mean, it's, it's like, what, the temple's gone? Uh, what hope is there? So Jesus says, have faith in God. When, when, when you see this temple mount uprooted and thrown into the heart of the sea, which, which is, again, uh, just a, a, a hyperbolic metaphor for the temple is going to be leveled, w w have faith in God when you see this happen, because that's 
not the end. It's actually the fulfillment. The temple is being leveled precisely because the true temple is here, meaning you can pray for forgiveness. Whatever you ask for in prayer, again, it's about whatever sin you bring to God, there is still forgiveness even though the temple is gone. There's no more temporal sacrifices. That doesn't matter because I'm about to give my life for a ransom for many. You can come to me with whatever sin you have, and there is forgiveness. And then, of course, in verse 25, there is this important point that that um, if you stand uh, praying, uh, forgive others. Uh, and, and we see Jesus teaching this in other places, too, that, that because we've received this free gift of forgiveness from God because of the sacrifice of Jesus, that, that entails that we, too, need to be willing to extend that free gift of forgiveness to others. And, and, and when you realize uh, that the whole thing here, especially alluding to Solomon's prayer, is about the temple and forgiveness, this ties in beautifully. On that same note, you know, our text ends with verse 25 today, and we'll be picking up with this text tomorrow with verse 27. So those who are uh, uh, keen-eyed will notice that there is no verse 26, but there used to be. So tell us a little bit about that. Why is there no verse 26? Yeah, it, 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 those uh, those of you out there who have a King James Bible or, or, or some other translations, you, you'll see that there's a verse 26. And, and, and in that verse, the ESV doesn't have it, but in that verse, it, it is, and if you don't forgive anybody the, their sins, God won't forgive uh, your sins. It's sort of the, the negative to what Jesus is saying in verse 25. And um, people might wonder, well, why isn't there? Well, without getting all technical, you know, the, the best uh, ancient manuscripts suggest that that verse doesn't really belong in Mark. Uh, that doesn't mean that the variant readings and other manuscripts are, are inaccurate. Uh, very likely, there may have been some scribes who, who thought of what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel and thought it would be very appropriate to add it here. So, so it's not that verse 26 is, is wrong. It's just that uh, the, the, the best manuscript evidence suggests that it was probably not part of Mark's original gospel. Um, so that's the best explanation I have as to why verse 26 isn't there. Well, it's a good explanation, and it's a nice teaser because we're going to be talking about this at length when we get to chapter 16. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're, far, we're far away from 16, but let me go ahead and ask you, are you a shorter ender or a longer ender uh, for when it comes to Mark? Oh, I go back and forth on this. Um, and, 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 <laughs> You're so loose. Actually, yeah, I know. Uh, and, and also, you have to treat every textual question as a separate issue. You know, um, like, for example, the whole the, the, the Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in Mark. There's different arguments for that versus the, the ending of Mark. And, and I think there's some very good arguments. I, I, at this point, uh, I, I realize there, was, there are some who will vehemently disagree with me. But I, I'm, I'm at the point where I think the, the long ending of Mark uh, is legitimate. Uh, I think there can be some good arguments for that. But but even if it's not, that, that doesn't mean that the long ending of Mark, even if it wasn't part of the original gospel, that doesn't mean it's not true. And I'll give you a good example just with the woman caught in adultery. Um, many scholars believe that that um, this this event where Jesus, you know, you know, says, you know, uh, uh, whoever is without sin, you know, cast the first stone and I do not condemn you, that whole event with the woman caught in adultery. There are many scholars who believe that that was sort of a free-floating oral tradition. In other words, it really happened. It really did happen. But, but it never appeared in any of the four Gospels, and yet people knew of this 
from oral tradition. In fact, this oral tradition of this event with the woman caught in adultery carried so much uh, legitimate weight among the early Christians that that early scribes felt it necessary to include it somewhere in the Gospels. Now, in in, in the vast majority of English translations, it, it lands in John's Gospel. What people may not realize, though, is in the manuscript condition tradition, it, it appears in various different places in John's Gospel, and that story also appears in some manuscripts of Luke's Gospel. <laughs> and and so the, the evidence that this was not originally part of John's Gospel is just overwhelming. But does that mean it wasn't true? No. Um, I, I believe it was a, a free-floating uh, oral tradition based on a real event in Jesus' life. And people uh, felt that this, this oral tradition carried so much weight that, that scribes felt almost obligated to include it somewhere uh, in the Holy Scriptures. So uh, just because something's a variant reading doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily necessarily mean it's not true. Well, and that's a good point. And that's why I bring it up here, because, we you know, we have this, I think it's a lot easier to understand when you look at just one verse and you go, oh yeah, that's obviously part of Jesus's teaching. We read it elsewhere. Someone inserted it here. And then just for, I, I guess, out of the desire to be as absolutely um, um, close to the original as we can get, we removed it and put it in the footnotes. Same thing with some right. of these other places. So I'm glad you brought that up. Now, as I'm looking, yeah, a lot over, of times oh, when people hear us talk about variants, they get confused. It's almost like, oh, does that mean I can't trust any of the Bible? Oh, no, 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 no. The, in fact, I remember I was reading a book on textual criticism once that dealt with all the different manuscript evidence and the variants. And the, the, the scholar made this comment. He says, the amazing, when you consider the vast majority of manuscripts for the New Testament, uh, which far outweighs, far outweighs any other evidence for ancient literature, we have tons of manuscript evidence. He says, the amazing thing is not that we have variants. He says, because all ancient literature with manuscript evidence has variants. All of it does. He says, so the amazing thing is not that we have variants. The amazing thing is that we have so few. <laughs> and that the few that we do have really don't change the meaning of the text uh, on the whole at all. And because and, most variants just have to do with spelling or, or, or maybe word order or here in a case where it's an obvious scribal addition that doesn't really change the doctrine of the text. But as far as, as, as the, the whole of, of the text itself, uh, we can be sure that, that you know, 99% of the New Testament uh, is what uh, was originally there. And, and the few variants that are there really make no theological difference whatsoever. So if anything, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament is nothing short of miraculous, the fact that we have so few variants. And we have so much manuscript evidence. You know, if it weren't dealing with a religious topic, there would be no objections to its historicity or its accuracy and everything else. Um, It's just really that attack on the fact that it's God's word that causes people to try so hard to discredit it. And they really do every time you turn around. Absolutely. Now, and, now and, looking, and that's why okay. people can take great, uh, they can take great uh, confidence in the fact that we have an accurate uh, scripture based on the, the, the just overwhelming manuscript evidence that we have for it. Now, as he's early in the, in the Holy Week here, you know, he's had the triumphant entry. We're, we're on Tuesday now. Um, and I don't want to dig too much into tomorrow's text, but, you know, they're going to come back to Jerusalem, of course, and he's going to go back to the temple. And in that situation, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they're all coming to him 
and they're they're basically saying, you know, what what are you doing? Um, you know, I think it's interesting, and I don't know that we I've ever really thought about it deeply. During Holy Week, Jesus is spending a lot of time in the temple. I mean, I mean, I think we yeah. we present it as though he hops in there, he cleanses it, and he you know he bails for the rest of it. But no, he's spending a lot of time in the temple. That's significant. It is. It is. In fact, you know, um, I'm not going to steal the thunder from your future episode, but but when we get to uh, chapter 13, not, not only is he hanging around the temple uh, all through chapter 12, but when you get to chapter 13 is when he actually very clearly and explicitly foretells the destruction of the temple. And and I think that the whole uh, flow here, especially going back to Mark 10:45, when he says, I'm, a, I'm about to you know, I haven't come to serve, but to be served. By the way, that that you can't help get away from the fact um, that that's an allusion to Isaiah 53. You know, the suffering servant. I, I think Jesus used that servant language for a reason. You know, I have not come to be served, but to serve. And, and you know, we think of the, the servant of Yahweh and Isaiah who who bears the sins of many. And and so um, uh, the fact that he's at the temple where the sacrifices are being offered, he's really trying to make a theological point here. You know, all this had its place. It was a picture preparing for me, but now it's about to pass away because the reality is here. It's interesting you bring up the suffering servant too, because, you know, I think there have been critics of the Bible that look at this and they say, well, he knows the prophecies. And so he's kind of trying to self-fulfill them by by doing some of these things. And in some cases, frankly, that's true. Right. I mean, he he, he knows the prophecy because he's the one who gave the prophecy. But but right. but even so, yes, of course, he is doing these things on purpose. Now, some things he couldn't have uh, orchestrated, so to speak, a lot of it, in fact, but on these things where he makes a decision in order to fulfill prophecy. Yeah. He's, he is doing that on purpose. I don't think there's any reason for us to deny that. Right. Right. In fact, that makes perfect sense. If, if we are to understand that the whole purpose of the old Testament is that it's preparatory for him, uh, it, it would be obvious for him to say, okay, I'm about to do this now to make it very clear to you that, that what was being pictured in the old Testament is now being fulfilled before your eyes. You know, and a good example of this, is we, we get this uh, in Mark's gospel as well as uh, Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is on the cross and he quotes from Psalm 22, you know, uh, Father, uh, you know, why have you forsaken me? And of course, you know, uh, I, I think uh, obviously people misunderstand that too, as though Jesus is, is doubting and having a pity party. No, he's he's preaching a sermon. He's quoting Psalm 22 and saying, hey, this whole thing's being fulfilled before your very eyes. That's an interesting point. I, you know, and I'm thinking about the other people that are involved in fulfilling these prophecies. In this case, uh, the the chief priest and the scribes, they're looking, and this is going back a little bit in our text, but they're looking for ways to destroy him. That's pretty yeah. tough and hard language. Not punish him, not dissuade him, not correct him, not you know teach against him, but destroy him. I just, I, I, how is it in the last couple of minutes we have in our lesson, you know, how is it that they are just so bent on destroying Jesus? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, simply put, he, he, he's not the Messiah they wanted. And we think about that in our culture today, too. There's a lot of people who love Jesus as long as he's the Jesus they want. Um, but a, a Jesus that calls you to repent of your sins, a Jesus who says, 
your sin is so bad that it took nothing less than my death to pay for it. That's not necessarily a very popular Jesus. <laughs> and so, you know, because he's not the Messiah they want, uh, they're ready to destroy him. What's ironic, though, is that it's their own temple that's going to be destroyed. And uh, the one they destroy, as we get later in Mark 12, uh, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And and so, ironically, in, in, in destroying Jesus, uh, they're, they're fulfilling the very prophecies of Isaiah 53, and they don't even realize it. Do you think, and I asked another guest this question too, do you think, and I know we're just conjecturing, that they believed that he was the Messiah and they were actively rejecting and trying to destroy him, or they simply just didn't believe that he was the Messiah because he didn't fit their expectations? Um, maybe there's a little bit of both, but what do you think? Yeah, I think maybe early in Jesus' ministry, there may have been some willingness to think he was the Messiah uh, uh, if he started doing what they thought the Messiah should do. But of course, they changed their tune when Jesus was not acting like the Messiah they wanted, and then they doubted that he was. I, I think of John 8, where Jesus says, to the Jews who had believed in him. I find that very interesting. It's like, okay, they used to think I was the Messiah, but not anymore. <laughs> and so I think if they did initially think he was the Messiah, they've changed their minds about that at this point, because he's not doing what they thought the Messiah should be doing. Oh, that's an excellent point. Well, I'll tell you what, we're at the end of our program today, and we're going to pick up on this theme as the authority of Jesus is challenged tomorrow. But for now, we're going to say goodbye, and I give my utmost thanks to my guest, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein. He's the pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Thanks, brother, for being on the show again. Yeah, my privilege. Thank you. So folks, folks, tomorrow, as I said, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders are going to challenge Jesus's authority to teach and perform miracles. But then Jesus responds with a question about John the Baptist's authority, and that leaves them unable to answer. And later on, the Pharisees and the Herodians try to trap Jesus with a question about paying taxes. Uh, but he cleverly responds that famous phrase, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, that teaches us that all things are uh, done in good and decent order, or at least they should be. But it also tells us that some things are Caesar's, but that means some things are not. And so we'll talk about that and a lot more tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.